morning. It is good to sing the praises of God and just sing such specific truth about who he is just stirs the hearts and the affections. And I'm just thankful for the team for helping us leading through that this morning. Well, for those of you who are first time here, I want to welcome you. And also, my name is Giorgio Marnacci. I'm actually the worship pastor here at West Shore, but I have the privilege of preaching today from 1 John as we continue our series in 1 John through 1 John 5. And as I was preparing, I found this really interesting story I've never heard before. And so there's a town in Pennsylvania about an hour and 40 minutes from here. It's a suburb of Philly called Norristown, Pennsylvania. And there was a man that lived there. His name was A.J. Brown. And for my Eagles fans, that is not associated with the wide receiver, uh, star wide receiver. But he lived in 1887, and he made his living making stationery. And he lived there for about two months. He had a good relationship with his landlord, with his neighbors, And something really weird happened on March 14th in 1887. He woke up and he had absolutely no idea who he was. And so the first person he saw after this happened was his landlord. He didn't even know who his landlord was. It was a person. He just said, who am I? He literally asked him, who am I? And so as the landlord is bewildered, he calls doctors to come and check on him. And doctors diagnose him with amnesia, that he forgot who he was. But this was actually not the case at all. Because A.J. Brown was not A.J. Brown. A.J. Brown is a fake person. His real name was Ansel Bourne. And what they came to find out is that he was a 61-year-old carpenter and pastor from Rhode Island. He had no recollection of the previous two months of living in this town, Norristown. He had no idea who A.J. Brown was. He, he was completely and utterly confused. And so what doctors ended up doing was they diagnosed him. He was the first instance of uh, this this, uh, extremely rare condition called dissociative fugue. And the word fugue comes from the Latin word for for flight. And so what happens is people with dissociative fugue, they temporarily lose their sense of, of identity, and they end up impulsively wandering around or traveling to out of their homes and out of their present lives and making up a new life and then forgetting who they even are in the new life. Uh, as they come to their senses. And so it's uh, associated with dissociative personality disorder where the personality splits and makes multiple personalities. That's a pretty crazy story. But you know, for us who are still weakened by the flesh and we think about that line in the hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave, the God I love, there, there are our times as the flesh still clings so closely that we can sort of fall into a spiritual dissociative view where we act like the old self. We don't act like and live like who we're called to be now as born-again believers. And what John's gonna remind us of today in 1 John 5 is that we have this new identity of being born again. He uses the phrase born of God, but then also what the markers of the Christian who is born of God should look like. And And through this spiritual new birth, we are a new creation where God took a dead heart and made it alive, breathe life into it. This is also known as spiritual regeneration is another term. And so as the old self was destroyed and the new self came, we are born again, having received the spirit of God to indwell in us. So there's new birth, new self, new heart, new spirit, new life. 
And John talks about the, the idea and the truth of new birth and regeneration quite a bit. He talks about it a number of times in 1 John. He also talks about it in his gospel, the gospel of John. In John 3, if you remember, he's actually the only apostle that uh, writes down an account of Jesus with Nicodemus. If you remember what happened with Nicodemus, who was a, a Pharisee, Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus and explains to him that for you to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is completely confused. He thinks it's a physical physical rebirth, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's a spiritual new birth. And he even starts off the gospel of John this way in John chapter one, verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Speaking of Jesus who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John is very passionate about this spiritual truth of new birth, and he reiterates the importance of it in the, the event and the life of the believer, and also how the fruit of what comes from uh, someone who's born again should look like, and it should be evident in our life. But when we forget this glorious new identity, what can happen is chaos can ensue in our life. We can give in to sin. We can give into disaster and destruction as we, as we cling to uh, doubts and fears, can even rush in, as we can even question, you know, are we saved? And during this time when John wrote this letter, you have to understand the context, and we've talked about this quite a bit during this series, is that there was a lot of false teaching that was coming at the church at the time. One of the main ones is Gnosticism, as Trent has spoken about uh, before. And so there's a lot of, there was confusion in the church, confusion about what it means to be even saved. Like, how do I even know I'm born again? And so John seeks to put a close on the question by once again reminding the reader that those who are born of God are a new creation, and then there's a change from that new birth in the individual, and it produces evidence, it produces fruit. Just a couple of verses from where we are now, he writes, just closing up pretty much the entire book, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants the reader to have assurance that if you're born of God, you are his, and that there are spiritual markers in your life displayed to prove such. And the evidence that we're gonna see here, see four specific things that John mentions here as evidence for new birth. First is faith in Jesus alone. Second is love for God, which is lived out by loving God's children. Obedience that comes from a joyful heart, knowing that his commands are not burdensome. And then finally, victory over the world, over your sin, over flesh. But here's the incredible thing about what we're going to see today. These are not just markers or evidence that one is born again, but being born again is the source of power that produces the evidence of the born again life. Does that make sense? And so there's this cyclical nature here and relationship where being born again, it should be a directive in how we are to live, but also it's the source from where we derive the power in order to fulfill the directive. It's incredible. What I would say in a metaphor is that if you're, you're making a dish, you would need a recipe. Now, when you have a recipe, what it does is it, it tells you, it informs you of all the ingredients that you have to have in the dish to make the dish. But at the same time, it's what carries you to complete something that you could not do on your own. And that may be a trite metaphor, but really the same can be said about what the new birth does, that it both dictates 
and defines how a Christian should live in this new reality, but also it's the source of power to accomplish what you are called to be and do. And so let's read this passage together, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. And it reads, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. But this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so today's big idea is this, and I have this written on your notes. If you have notes with you, being born of God is a God-ordained work that empowers and displays our faith in Jesus, faith in Christ, our love for God and his children, our obedience, and our ultimate victory over the world. It's a glorious identity that has changed everything. And it's so freeing because this new state that has been bestowed on us, on you like a life-giving eternal crown of glory has been started and is sustained and will be finished by God and the power of his spirit that indwells in those that are born again. And so it's freeing to know that everything that we're going to see today is not just something that you have to do on your own to prove your faith or prove to God that you belong to him, but rather also all the markers and the evidence are a byproduct of the gracious action God has taken on your life already. So we can rest in that. So my hope is a couple of things for us today as we go through this passage. First is I hope that we have a fresh sense of what it means to be born of God, a fresh and renewed sense to the absolute incredible truth that, that we are born again to a living hope and God did this work alone. Second, I hope that we leave with more of an assurance that we belong to him, that we see these markers in our life. And third, where there needs to be correcting for some of us, there needs to be a, a kind rebuke from the scriptures that perhaps we, we've lived like the old self, that God would bring you back into alignment of who you're called to be and how you're supposed to live as a born-again believer, and that you have victory. You have victory over the world. And so the first evidence characteristic we see here, those who are born of God have faith in Jesus as the Christ. John 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so John, right, right from the start here, he says that those who are born again, they have an essential faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Like the two cannot be mutually exclusive. New birth results in faith. No other way around it. But not only does faith in Jesus serve as a marker of new birth, but the new birth, being born of God, is what produces faith, which leads to repentance in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to share more scripture to echo this truth, but the fact is that God made us alive through his volition, through his willful pursuit of us as dead sinners. 
that when he pursued and acted in our dead hearts and they became alive, our blinded eyes were open to see how glorious and real Jesus Christ is as Savior and King, and we repented of our sins, and we confessed with our mouth that he is Lord, and we gained a faith in Jesus for our redemption, for our life, for our breath, for our forgiveness. And so in other words, new birth precedes faith. And so one could say our faith is started by God alone. You see, it's not that we just woke up one day and in our own intellect said, you know what, I think I want to try this Christian thing. It sounds like a pretty good idea. We had nothing good in us before the Lord acted. Nothing. Not an ounce of intellect or godly wisdom. But rather, it's a sovereign, gracious work that God would come to us, a rebel, to open our eyes to his grace and his son Jesus, and then breathe new life, pour new blood into your veins, giving way to a new spiritual heart that is beating and alive to him and fulfilling the promise that he made all the way back in Ezekiel 36. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Have you ever looked at what it takes to do a heart transplant? And that's a really weird question, right? Like you've ever Googled like the steps of doing like a YouTube video or something. But this procedure, doing a heart heart transplant is a very difficult and complex procedure that only an individual who has gone to medical school and has had years of residency and then fellowship and then training as a heart surgeon is able to do. There's a lot of things that go into doing a heart transplant. There's a huge preoperative process where the donors have to be matched. And then when the patient comes in to have the procedure done and have the heart's swapped. Does a patient really do anything? No. They get anesthesia, and they go to REM stage 1,000. And then a bunch of hours later, they wake up with a brand new heart. And during the procedure, the patient is so powerless in it that they can't even breathe on their own. And obviously, there's no heart in them as they're swapped. So there's that machine that's hooked up called a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. And what this machine does is that it simulates the heart and the lungs by removing carbon dioxide and toxins from the blood and putting in oxygen-rich, good blood so that it provides for the organs so the organs are all alive. The heart is swapped, post-op procedure, patient wakes up. Now imagine you're the surgeon and you just did this incredible work. I mean, it's pretty incredible a human can do a work like that. And the patient looks at you and says, man, I'm so glad that I, I went to medical school and did that procedure right now. My hands were steady. I, I, feel, I feel like I did a good job of myself. And by the way, you should pay me. I'm not going to pay you for doing the procedure. Like, you'd be like, what? This doesn't make any sense. The surgeon is the one who did the work. And in the same way, when it comes to a new birth, God is the one who tra- transferred our hearts from a, a dead heart of stone to a, a heart that's alive and beating for him. And here's just a couple of passages throughout the Bible to echo this truth. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will never be cast out. 
2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. There's many more scriptures to echo this truth. It's in his gracious and sovereign hands that he even moved to open our eyes to a place where we see him and understand in our innermost being that he is the one true God that is to be loved and served and cherished and worshiped. And the regenerated heart and mind responds, responds with repentance and faith. We must know this is God's doing and not ours. And so what, did this, what should this produce right from the outset? I think a couple things. First, it should produce just gratefulness. Just gratefulness that God would come to us. Now, we have to understand something, what our default position was. We weren't walking. We weren't jogging. We were sprinting towards hell. And on the way sprinting there, we're laughing and having a great time. Meanwhile, what's waiting for us is complete eternal destruction. And in, those, in that moment of that sprint towards full punishment, God kindly says, no, look at me. Look at me. I love you. I've forgiven you. Look at my son. Repent. Confess. Believe. And that should just give us such grateful hearts. We didn't deserve his grace at all. But he gave it to us in love. Second is that it should produce rest. That he started the work, that he's sustaining us by the power of his spirit, and he will complete it. That's his promise. And so there's rest that we don't have to earn our faith every day. We don't have to earn salvation. We don't have to try to keep holding on to make sure that we're still born again. We rest in his power. And third, hope. There's hope. Hope that nothing can snatch us from his hands, that his love will never be separated from us. And then we can declare and sing and say and believe. 1 Peter 1 According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And this faith that we have in Jesus that John is talking about, we have to also understand what this means is that it's simply more than just listing, uh, believing a list of facts about Jesus as a historical figure, or that he was just a really awesome guy with great teachings. I mean, James 2.19 says that even the demons believe. They believe in God. Satan knows that Jesus exists. But what faith is more than just hoping things work out that we, we decided to be on the right team religiously or that it's checking off a box for the Christian life. Faith is more than hoping for a circumstance change. Faith is believing with your entire being and submitting your life to him that Jesus is the son of God, that he has full authority, power, and rule over your life, that he is the only source for forgiveness and mercy, that he alone can atone for your sins and heal your sin-sick heart and grant you eternal life. And so we humbly look to God and we say, thank you for opening my eyes to your gospel, for calling me home, for regenerating my dead spirit. I could not see what was right in front of me until you intervened, O oh God. And what this does is it makes us so incredibly small and makes him so massively large in goodness and grace and mercy. So we look at the second evidence or indicator of those who are born of God. Second is that they love God and love his children. First John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And so it's key that we follow John's thought here. He starts with identifying that those who are born of God have faith. We talked about that. They have a love for the Father. And then from that love for the Father, there's a love for his children. When he's saying his children, he means the saints. He's meaning those who are are redeemed, our brothers and sisters here, united uh, in Christ. And so one of the ways that we prove our love for God is by loving each other, loving the body. And so once again, these things are not separate you can have one without the other. And so I think these two verses could be summed up by saying this, that those who truly love God love his children. And when we love God with our entire lives, that love for him, it includes obedience. It's just a byproduct of love for God. And obedience to his commands, which include just a chapter before this, 1 John 4, 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so by loving God through obeying this command, well, what's the result? Well, it's love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's like this cyclical, just this cycle of, of love where love for God overflows with love for his children. And then as we are loving his children, we're in turn loving God because we're obeying his command to do so. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. And what kind of love is John talking about here? Well, the Greek word that he uses is a verb, agapau, which is a verb for love that means an unselfish love. It's a giving of yourself to others. It's a sacrificial love that mimics the love of God, where John uses the same word in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, sacrificial love, his only begotten son. And so it's a love that, that costs something. It may cost your time, your resources, just doing whatever you want with your life to actively love others. But this agapal love that he's calling us to is the way that God loves us. We're supposed to love each other. The way that John MacArthur writes about uh, this word specifically, he says that this type of love it expresses the purest, noblest form of love, which is willfully driven, not motivated by superficial appearance, emotional attraction, or sentimental relationship. It expresses the ideal kind of love that which is exercised by the will rather than by emotion, not determined by the beauty or the desirability of the object, but by the noble intention of the one who loves. And that's a kind of love that is lived out. Talk is very cheap. You would, you would wonder if I loved my wife, if all I said to her was, I love you, babe, I love you. And then I ignored her, maybe mistreated her, never encouraged her, never find time just to, to, to uh, serve her at all. You'd wonder, like, does he really love her? But agapal love that we're called to be is one that is active and real and tangible. And just for application here, there's four words that I just kind of came up with that I think hopefully will help us today with this type of love is that when we love others in the church in this way, we are to be attentive, we are to be available, we are to be willing, and we are to be generous. What I mean by this is to be attentive is that we are attentive to those that have needs in the church, that we don't wait for people to come to us and say, hey, I need help, but we go searching for those in our body that need aid. And I know today's you know, day and age, it's hard for us to ask for help. So a lot of times when people need help, they won't even ask for it. Because like, you know, I, I got this. But we look. 
We're attentive to the needs. Second is to be available. And I think, really, this may be the most, um, just the hardest one in our, in our time. And everyone is busy. Everyone that I talk to, hey, how's life? Oh, man, it's so busy. Just got all the stuff I got to do, you know. And, and in our life right now, we are in a very busy season. Uh, we have four kids, ages 5, 6, 12, 15. That's all of them. Yes, that's all of them. And... You know, there's a lot of times where, you know, it says in that one uh, psalm, you know, sins as far as the east is from the west. It feels like our kids need to be in the complete opposite directions at all times. And so it's like, all right, we got four kids. This one's got to be at soccer. This one's got to be at basketball. This one has musical practice. This one has a birthday party. Uh, okay, well, how are we going to do this? We got two cars. And at the end of the day, you end up just being like a taxi driver. And it's great, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's just busy. There are schedules. We just fill them with so much. And I think in secret, we like to be busy. It's almost like a humble brag, like, yeah, I'm real busy, I'm important. And you're just driving your car around, spending like $100 on gas a week. But this is a real challenge. This is a real challenge in my life. And so it's like, how can we make time to just be available for people? That if someone does come to us in the body and they say, hey, I need help, it's not like, ooh, sorry, I'm busy, can't, got something else I got to do. But like that we just are like, yeah, I got, let's do it. What do you need? What do you need? And you're there. Third is being willing to be used in, in ways that you've never thought that you could imagine to get out of your comfort zone. It's not easy for us to love in this way. And then fourth is to be generous, just to be generous with yourself, to be generous of your time, of your skills, of your resources, money, possessions to help those that are in need. This is how we actively love in the church. So moving on. Third, evidence marker of the born-again life. Talked about faith in Jesus, love for God and others, an act of love. And the third one we see here is that born-again believers, they obey God's commands joyfully. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And there's, still, there's this more general exhortation here from John that rounds out what the born-again life looks like, that a, a pure love for God, the simple fact that if we love God, we obey God, but then further than that, the obedience is done out of joy because we know that his commands are not a burden, but we know that they're a gift. We know that they're freeing. We know that they're life. It's not just about fulfilling a duty but it's about having delight in what God's called us to be. I love my kids. I really do. It's weird how you start off that statement, where you're going with this. But I, I love my kids. They're so much fun. I get to laugh with them, play games with them, have fun with them, just be silly and, and goofy, which I think is most of my personality. Uh, but, you know, it, the fun ends sometimes when you ask them to do something real quick. For parents, you know what I'm talking about. That when you ask them, hey, I need you to clean your room. I need you to stop hitting your brother or sister. I need you to put that cookie down, whatever it looks like. How many times? I don't think it's 100% of the time, right? Where the, your, your kid just says, oh, thank you for giving me this command. Your commands are not burdensome, but they are a joy to follow because I love you, daddy. And I know that in this command that you want the best for me. So I will follow them with a joyful heart. Now, if any of you in here, that's your experience every time, please come see me after, because I need help. Um, 
kids are great. But no, there are times where there's a struggle, right? And there's some stomping of feet maybe and some talking back and some negotiating and all this. And I think as parents, for me, sometimes I can look at my kids when, you know, they're like that. And I'm like, how could they? Don't they see what I'm trying to do for them? I'm trying to help them and trying to protect them? This is ridiculous. How many times do we do that with the Lord's commands? Where the Lord asks us to do, like living a selfless life is not easy. It's easier just to do whatever you want, be whoever you want, at any time, give in to your, your impulses. Self-control is not easy. And so a lot of times, you know, we, we think about the commands of God and Again, with our flesh, we, we just grit our teeth. We're like, I know I'm a Christian, so I can't hock my horn at that person that cut me off. Or that person at work that's mistreating me, I have to continue loving them with a smile. But the Lord wants more than that. He desires for the born-again believer that his commands, that we do them with so much joy and delight, knowing where, what place that they come from that his commands don't come from a place that he is a taskmaster, that he is a dictator. But he makes commands and gives us a blueprint for life, for how to live, because he's a gracious and loving father that wants to save us, wants to keep us from the disaster that disobedience and sin brings in our life. Freedom is when we follow him in obedience. And then we can echo what Psalm 119 says. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. He's not keeping us from fun like the world sees it, but his commands are keeping us from the consequences of sin. And so we live as born-again believers seeking to follow his commands, knowing the life and the blessing that they bring because he loves us dearly. And so finally, we see as the final result, evidence, prize of being born of God, being born again. And this is such good news for what we just heard about, about obeying God with joy is that we have victory over the world. We have victory over our flesh. We have victory over sin. First John 5, 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so now there's this crescendo of power, crescendo of, of evidence for those that are born of God. That those who have faith in Jesus as Lord and King and follow his commands with joy, that they have victory over the world. And so real quick, what does John mean by the world? Because we see kind of these different terms in the Bible in terms of the world, the flesh, the sin. And so when he's talking about the world, we just go a couple chapters before this chapter in 1 John 2. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, those things that, that just, you know, tempt the, the flesh to want it to give in to sin, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life 
is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. And so the world, we could also say, is everything that causes us to see God's commands as burdensome and that are obviously counter to God's commands. And what the world does is it tries to put these shiny things in, in front of our eyes and, our, and its idols and attempts to, to trick us into thinking that what it offers is a better treasure than what Christ has for us. And so we see this promise here that for those that have their faith in Jesus that are born again, they overcome its temptation. They overcome the allure of the world. That those who have a new heart, they can, we can reject its ways, its desires, and instead pursue obedience. This is specific and unique power for those that are born again. And so I know that some of you may have this question. I've had this question at times in my life. With all this that we've talked about, and you, you say, well, I, I'm a born-again believer. I see the evidence of that in, in my faith. I believe in Jesus. I've confessed my sin to him. I've repented. I know that I have his spirit within me. I know that I love God, that I love his people, that I love his church, that I, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I, I read my Bible. I pray. I go to life group. I listen to worship music, all of it. I do everything I can to empower my soul on a daily basis to have victory. But then why do I keep on sinning? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And further than that, why at times do I enjoy sin? Enjoy my idols? Why do I give in to the lies of the enemy? Where the accuser says, you're condemned when I fall to temptation. Why does it seem like I have not overcome? And in this question, in this battle, know that you're not alone. Paul had the same exact frustration and question. He wrote the book of Romans, and after all these chapters about the love of God and the gospel of Jesus, and that we're dead to sin and alive to Christ and his righteousness, he just stops in the middle of the book. In Romans 7, he says this, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And, and logically, it makes absolutely no sense for us who have been redeemed. We think about the incredible truth of the gospel and every component of it. It's an incredible story and an incredible reality. It makes no sense that we would go back to a place of death that we would try to play with old rags and mud piles. And sin really is like a bottle of bleach in a sense that we know what the bottle of bleach contains. It contains poison. And if we drink it, it's going to bring bad things in our life. But still, we see this bottle of bleach and it's got a nice label on it. And we get tricked. We allow ourselves to get tricked into thinking that, hey, maybe this time is different. Maybe if I consume it, it might be good for me and I'll actually enjoy it. But in the end, all it does is it just brings more pain. It's irrational that we sin. But here's the deal. Here's the, here's the fact. We still live in a fallen world. Our flesh is still weak, and we fall to temptation. And we are still at times being lulled asleep by the things of the world. And there's this war between the spirit and the flesh that's waged until we have fully glorified, perfected bodies before his presence in heaven. 
But until then, with this battle, there is no ceasefire. You can reason more with a rabid dog than you can the flesh of the world. But with all that said and that reality, all is not lost. In fact, nothing is lost, but everything has been won through the work of God and the new spiritual birth. Where we don't have to be controlled any longer or compelled by sin. Because we're not slaves to sin any longer. Where every time temptation comes in our face, that we can say no because of the power of Christ in us. 1 John 5, 4, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our faith that is founded on Jesus who has crafted it, who has authored it. Faith that we trust him to overcome temptation and that the lies of the world and that when we trust he is who he says he is. And I'm just gonna read off a bunch of names, titles that we see for Christ, descriptors for Christ in the Bible. And what I want us to also understand when I read this is that these are not just nice titles. These are names that he's lived out in every way and he still is living out and will live out beyond eternity. We have faith in Jesus who is the Alpha and the Omega, the Son of the living God, the image of the invisible, the firstborn of all creation, the resurrection and the life, the Prince of Peace, the Holy One of Israel, the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the true prophet and high priest, the fountain of living waters, the way, the truth, the life, the great shepherd of our souls, the author and finisher of our faith, King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And so we have faith in him and what he's done that he is stronger, that he is greater, that he is more glorious than anything the world can offer. And then our faith at his perfect sacrifice on the cross and his all authoritative resurrection from the dead and in his perfect rule and reign wins the day for us. And faith that as born again believers, we are recipients because of all that of unmeasured spiritual power, life, and strength. You see, Paul, who wrote that very kind of you know, paragraph where he's frustrated with himself in Romans 7, he doesn't stay there because just a couple of verses later, Romans 8 starts and Roman 8, Romans 8 verse 1 says, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ because he knows where the power resides. He knows where the victory comes from. The victory comes from, from those who are born of God that they now have this new birth where they have the very spirit of God indwelling in them. And then he writes again, just a, verse, a couple of verses later, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, just let, let that sink in for a second. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so we don't, because of that incredible truth and the prize of the new birth, we don't have to fall back into a spirit of slavery, spirit of sin, spirit of fear, that we are in bondage to sin, that we are not his but then that those through the new birth, us here have the spirit of God and that spirit of God is the spirit of adoption where we cry to God, Abba, Father, you have given me victory over sin, over my flesh, over the world. And so we live that way. 
And the problem still, when we fall temptation, because it's gonna happen, the problem in those times, I think, just based on 1 John 5, just one reflection is that I think we, we forget. We forget our identity. We forget who we are. We forget of what we're called to be, what we've been saved from, and how God has put his power in us that we don't have to say yes to sin, that we don't have to give in to the world. And so what do we do in those times? Well, as John says, what's our victory is our faith. So go back to your faith. Go back to the gospel. Don't just recite it, rehearse it. Don't just read it, know it, live it, every single part of it, from the cross to the empty grave to the sending of his spirit to his ultimate return. We have to rehearse the gospel, our faith, because it's a power to overcome. It's the power to have victory. And so today, are, are you tired of, of fighting the lust of the eyes and perhaps even giving in? Remember your identity, who you are as a born-again believer, that you've been called to purity because our God is pure and holy, and you've been purified by his spirit. Are you weary that that pride is beating you down in your life? Humbly remember what you've been saved from. Humbly remember your direction was running towards hell, and there was nothing good in you, nothing good in us, that we deserve to be saved but only out of his mercy and salvation did he give his son so that we could be born again. Are you sick of selfishness and anger and greed and whatever it is and addictions in your life? Remember that through the new birth that God has granted you the same spirit that has raised Jesus from the dead, giving life to you and the power to say no to the devil and say yes in obedience to God. That's the truth. That's our reality. And so in conclusion, we say this. We thank God with, with humble and awestruck hearts that the God over all creation, he made us alive to him, born again, born of him, through the work, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And then from that new birth gives way to an everlasting and unfading faith as we put our trust and confess our sins before Jesus and in him as our, and our God as our father. And this new birth that has given us a new life-giving love for our God, a love that overflows into selfless love for his children and his, his church, a love that is more than words, but it's action, this new birth that has granted us the great gift of God's very spirit, we can obey him joyfully. His commands are not a burden. And following this new birth, we know that because of our faith in Christ and the power of his spirit, we have victory over the world, over our flesh. And the new birth grants us this amazing promise of eternal life with him. And so it's fitting now that we move to communion because communion is such an important part of our life as believers in remembering and declaring the gospel corporately. And I, I don't want this time to pass us by quickly. And just a reminder that this is not just a nice church tradition, and the servers can come forward. This is not just a nice church tradition or something we do because it's the first week of the month. It's something that we're commanded to do, but there are so many benefits to this meal that we're taking together corporately. And first, when we take communion together, it, what it is is that it's a, it's a feast that sets our mind on the death of Christ by giving us a vivid picture of what Jesus went through so that we could be free. 
When we think about the bread and his body was broken on the cross, he took the whip and the crown of thorns and, and the nails and the spear, the utter pain, the blood that was poured from his body. And then he was in complete isolation and carried the very wrath of God on him. Second is that when we come to this table, that what we're doing is we're accepting an invitation to the Lord, a gentle invitation to come and, and lay, lay beside his feet and lay down our burdens and our sins, knowing that he is faithful and loving to forgive. Third is that we're proclaiming that all of the blessings that God has won for us, that Jesus has won through us for us through the gospel is, is ours, that we share and have his victory. And then fourth, that what we're doing is we're publicly and corporately declaring our faith together, united as the body of Christ. It's important to say this, that if you are not a believer here, communion is for believers that have put their faith and trust in Christ. I ask that you let the elements pass. But the prayer team will be here. I'll be here also at the, at the end of service. We'd love to speak to you. If the Lord is pricking on your heart, what it means to be born again in the gospel, Love to speak with you and pray with you after. And so as we take communion, may our faith in Jesus grow larger. May our love for our God grow stronger. May our motivation to obey him enlarge. May we be reminded of his victory over sin, over death. 